We left off, Jesus mentioned that um, it's only in his hometown and in his own house that a prophet is without honor. And um, they were looking at Jesus and saying, wait a minute, don't we know this guy? Don't we know Joseph and Mary and his brothers and sisters? And isn't he the carpenter's son? And, and so um, it says in verse 58 there, as we close chapter 13, and he did not do many miracles there because of the, their lack of faith. Um, faith plays a big part, as you're going to see tonight as we get into Matthew's Gospel, these next couple of chapters, you're going to see faith plays quite a role in miraculous things that happen. Um, Jesus really honors a person's faith. Um, I know there are some schools now of religious thought that faith is a force and you can control this force, you know, and uh, you can muster up faith and, you know, but that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God honors those that trust him and put their faith in him and believe in him. There's an object of faith. The object of our faith is Jesus. And when you put your faith in Jesus, you will see some incredible miraculous things. But it's a condition. It's a heart condition. Condition of the, not, and I don't mean your blood pump. I mean it's a heart condition in terms of attitude and and uh, the seat of your your very being, way down in the depths of you. Um, I've heard faith defined. <clears throat> it's kind of a silly little story of a guy that was uh, up on a, a platform that stood some sixty feet above the ground, and uh, he was uh, a high wire artist and he would walk this tight wire between these two platforms up in the air some 60 feet and uh, he was so good that he could you know ride a bicycle back and forth or he could you know take a wheelbarrow across or whatever you know and, and uh, really had it down and so he called for a volunteer from the from the crowd and took him up on this platform and says no I can uh, I can take this wheelbarrow and I can walk from this platform to that platform across this wire 60 feet in the air. Do you believe I can do that? And he said, yeah, I believe that you can do that. But the definition of faith is getting in the wheelbarrow and letting him prove that he can do that. So that's a big difference between believing Jesus and putting your faith in Jesus. Putting your faith in him is trusting him with your very life, with your very soul with your very heart. And you're going to see some of that tonight. <clears throat> it starts out, though, and this is one of the reasons I gave those handouts. It says, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, if that sounds like a superstition to you, it is. A superstition. It doesn't even line up with, um, <clears throat> you know, the doctrines of, and I use that term loosely, the doctrines of reincarnation in Hinduism. I mean, he's thinking, oh, you know, John the Baptist's spirit, you know, ris risen from the dead, and now this Jesus is John the Bapti Baptist uh, reincarnate. And but it doesn't line up because if you remember. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. 
They grew up together. They grew up side by side. How could Jesus be a reincarnation of John, even in the weirdest terms of that doctrine of reincarnation? It's a superstition. Now, understand this about Herod. This is this Herod. There's a whole family of these Herods, but this Herod is Herod Antipas. He's the son of Herod the Great. And when it comes to, when you come to that word, it says Herod the Tetrarch. Uh, a Tetrarch is a ruler over one-fourth of a region. So if you take a look at that map that's in front of you there of the Holy Land under Herod the Great, or as Jerry Mansavage would say, Herod the Not-So-Great, I like that. <laughs> this guy, and you, if you do any studying on him, and I, I recommend that you do. I recommend that you get you know, like a Bible uh, encyclopedia or something, or if you don't have one, borrow one and, and do a little study, or even on the internet, on Herod the Great and his family tree. Um, because this guy was a paranoid schizophrenic and it came right down the, the, I mean, from the roots all the way up the tree. If you look at this, it, but if you look at that map, you see where Galilee is, and you see where Perea is. You see um, Herod's Herod the Great's sons um, divided up his kingdom into four parts, and so Herod Antipas, the one we're speaking of tonight, the Tetrarch, he was a, a ruler then of one fourth of this kingdom. And he ruled over the Galilee region and Perea. Okay, so you get an idea of where he was ruling. Now, on the other side of that handout, and that's kind of a cool map as we, as we go through these chapters in Matthew, uh, this is going to come in handy for you to look up places and as Jesus is traveling around the area of the Sea of Galilee, um, you'll be able to see some of these towns, some of the areas where he travels. But take a look at the other side of that handout and look at the, the Herodian family. Because if you look way over on the left-hand side there where it says Generation 1, there you have Herod the Great. And it says he was uh, king of Judea from 37 to 4 B.C. And then it talks about that in Matthew 2, uh, 1 through 19, Luke 1, 5. But then if you go into the second generation and look right straight across from Herod the Great, it says Herod Antipas. That's the guy that we're going to look at right now. And if you go just to the right of Herod Antipas, you see, well, first of all, it says he's the Tetrarch of Galilee from 4 B.C. to A.D. 39. And then it gives the scripture references there. But go to the right a little bit more and you'll see Herodias. And we're going to read about her. That was... Herod Antipas's wife that he actually took from his brother. It's actually his brother's wife, and this is what got John the Baptist in trouble. And if you go just a little bit to the right into generation four there, you'll see um, Salome. And she was the daughter of Herodias that danced for Herod. All right, so we're going to read about that right now. But this just kind of gives you the, a little bit. Of, and understand this about this family. It'd be kind of like I guess the best way to describe it would be to say the first, a first century mafia, okay? That's the best way to describe these people. I mean, they were absolutely ruthless. Herod was so, so ruthless that he killed his, you know, his own family because he was afraid that they were going to take over his kingdom. He's the one that gave the decree to uh, kill all the babies 
you know, I mean, come on, this guy's absolute. We're talking about first century mafia here. This guy's absolutely paranoid, schizophrenic. So a tetriarch is a ruler of a fourth part of a region. Herod the tetriarch, this is Herod Antipas, was one of several sons of Herod the Great. When Herod the Great died, his kingdom was divided among four of his sons. And, and um, Herod Antipas then ruled over Galilee and Perea from 4 B.C. to A.D. 39. Now, it says he thought that Jesus was John the Baptist resurrected. That's kind of a flashback because verse 3 says, Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, It's not lawful for you to have her. Now you guys remember what a straight shooter John the Baptist was. He's going to tell you just what he thinks. And he's out there telling people to repent of their sins. And it didn't matter if you were Herod Tetrarch or if you were king or queen. or It didn't matter who you were. He was going to tell you if you were in sin, you need to repent, turn away from those things, and turn to God, ask for forgiveness. So apparently, uh, things got a little personal here when he said, you have your brother Philip's wife. You had, you had no business taking her from your brother. All right. He says, it's not lawful for you to have her. Now, Herod, it says, verse 5, wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. Now, if that's not a true politician, I've never heard one. He wants to kill this guy, but he's afraid of the people. Oh, you know. Things haven't changed much, have they? Politicians, you know, lick your finger, put it in the wind, see which way the wind's blowing, and then that's how you make your decisions. And, ooh, we wouldn't want to ruffle the feathers of the crowd, you know, or the people. That's So you got this paranoid guy who wants to kill John, but he's not going to because he's afraid of the people. But verse 6 says, On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The head of John the Baptist. Now, that's about as cruel and sadistic as it gets. She dances this dance. Herod is pleased in front of all his party guests. He says, ask whatever you want. In fact, one of the other gospels says, up to half of my kingdom. <laughs> you know, ask whatever you want. She asks, because her mother prompts her, she asked for John Baptist's head. I'm going, man, talk about living up to the family name. This is really, really cruel. Now, the king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in, in the prison. Wait a minute. Swayed by his dinner guests? He has this guy's head cut off? I mean, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. This is a, this is a pretty sick society we're talking about here. Not unlike the one you and I live in today. It's getting kind of hard to pick up the paper or watch the news. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it, and then they went and told Jesus. 
you know, this society that we're looking at here, one of lust, one of self-gratification, one of murder, just absolutely sick. Man hasn't changed much. So we go on into verse 13, and it says, When Jesus heard what had happened, that is, referring to John being beheaded in prison, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Jesus just, and I can understand this. I mean, this is his cousin. Imagine getting the news that your cousin was beheaded in prison under these kind of circumstances. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I would need some time to to kind of clear my thoughts, and, and Jesus wanted to be alone. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. It says, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. So if you picture this on the, uh, the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, in that area of Capernaum, and you look at how Jesus and his disciples traveled by boat. This, this lake isn't all that big. I think from one end to the other, it's only about eight miles. And you could literally watch a boat take off from one end and, and go to the other, I mean, on a clear day anyway. And, and so they were able to, by land, kind of meet him there. He's trying to just find some solitary place. It says that the crowds followed him on foot. From the town, so I want you to get the right idea here. They weren't walking on the water, following Jesus in the boat, but they were going along the shoreline, and wherever Jesus went, they would follow. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Now, isn't that cool? He wants to find solitude. He wants to find a quiet place, and yet, every place he goes, there's another crowd, and the Bible tells us Jesus had compassion. I'm so glad that he doesn't change. I'm so glad that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus still has compassion, and he still sees those of us that need him desperately. He meets us there. It says he healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Now, at this point, if you can picture this, the disciples try to give Jesus a little bit of counsel. <laughs> Here's our counsel, Lord. Here's what we think. Why don't you just send all these people home? You know, I mean, it's getting late. It's getting dark. We're getting tired. Just send them home. But, but watch what Jesus does. And by the way, this is pretty important here. We're going to look at this miracle of Jesus feeding what the, the subtitle says, Jesus feeds the 5,000, but actually... It's 5,000 men. This is not counting the women and children. If there was just one woman and one child for every man, we're talking 15,000 people. There may have been more. So, I mean, this is quite a, quite a crowd. I mean, picture this is like Cornerstone, you know, without the weird haircuts and stuff. <clears throat> Thousands of people gathered here. And Jesus replied, now the disciples counseled Jesus, just send them away. Jesus replies, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Ha <laughs> ha. How'd you like to hear that? You know, 
15,000 people. You feed them. Wait a minute. Verse 17. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Now, can I just show you something? Let me just take you. Turn back to uh, Exodus chapter 4 for a second. I want to show you something. (coughs) This is uh, quite interesting because you and I, when we're out of resources, we take that kind of personal and we just go, you know, I'd really like to help. I'd like to help. But, you know, what am I? Do you remember when Moses had the experience on the mountain with the burning bush? He saw he was drawn to this bush that was on fire and, and yet it wasn't consumed. The, the picture there is... is uh, I mean, it wasn't unusual to see a bush burning in the desert. That's not all that unusual. I mean, there's lightning and there's spontaneous combustion. There's a lot of things that can happen to cause a burning. But that wasn't the weird part. The weird part was that it wasn't consumed. If you look at the symbolism involved in that, Moses is standing there looking at this bush that's burning, but it's not consumed. The burning, the fire, is a symbol of judgment. The fact that it wasn't being consumed is a symbol of God's mercy and his grace. So here's Moses standing before God, and, and, and then he gives Moses this. He tells him who he is. In verse 14 of chapter 3, he says, you know, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is who you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. But look at chapter 4 and, and verse 1, because Moses answers. Now, picture this. God's saying, I'm going to use you, Mo. You're going to go to, to the Egyptians. You're going to go to Pharaoh. You're going to tell him, let my people go. And this is Mo's response. He says, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, What's in your hand? Now take note of this. What's in your hand? And a staff, he replies. The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. And Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake. And he ran from it. I like that. That's cool. I always pictured, you know, when I picture Moses, I picture Charlton Heston. I don't think he's afraid of anything, but I see Moses in the scriptures. You know, it says he ran, snake, he ran. Oh, you know. And, and so he runs from it, and then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take the snake by the tail. <laughs> I don't know. I'm going, Lord. <laughs> it's going, take the snake. <laughs> no, it doesn't say that. I'm just... You know, I'm reading into this a little bit, but it, 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 Mo must have been freaking out here. So it says, reach out your hand, take it by the tail. So Moses reached out, took it, took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. Now picture that. You see, Moses' rod became God's rod. You understand? When, you, when whatever it is that we have, here the disciples are going, hey, all we got is you know, a few loaves of bread, a few fish, but you know, when you put it in God's hands, it's like Moses with this rod. Okay, now before you go back to Matthew, let me show you another one, Judges. Take a right-hand turn there. Judges, chapter 15. <clears throat> and... see Judges chapter 15 and verse 15 okay now this is 
Samson's vengeance on the Philistines. And you, need the, you, you know the story, so I don't need to go through the whole story. But, but I want you to, to look at uh, about with um, verse 14. As he approached Lehi, the Philistines came toward him shouting, The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax. In other words, they were just like nothing. He was just able to snap them. And the bindings dropped from his hands. Verse 15, this is what I want you to know. Okay, so far we've seen seen Moses and this rod that God is going to use to do all these incredible things. Now we see Samson. Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and he struck down a thousand men. You know, with the jawbone of a donkey. I mean, come on. And he struck down a thousand Philistines. That's pretty incredible. One more. Gospel of John. Chapter 2. <coughs> All these things that you would think, oh, come on, a stick, Mo, a stick. Yeah, he says, touch it in the, in the Nile. He touches it in the Nile, and the Nile River turns to blood. I mean, the staff, hold up your staff and part the Red Sea. Kill a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. John chapter 2. And in John chapter 2, I want you to look at, you remember this account, it's the, uh, the wedding feast at Cana. And um, in verse 3, it says, When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Verse 4, Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Which, by the way, is pretty good advice. I used this portion of scripture at a wedding not too long ago. And um, it was a situation where I, I happened to know that a lot of the people at this wedding were, were um, Catholics because it was all my family, and <laughs> I know them very well. And I said, you know, if, if, if you really love Mary, you'd take note of her last recorded words in Scripture. These are Mary's last recorded words in Scripture. She points to Jesus and says, do whatever he tells you. Is that awesome? That's worth writing down. I'd write that down somewhere. Do whatever he tells you. So, verse 6, and here's what I want you to see pertaining to our story about just putting it in the hands of God. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washings, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And you know the rest of the story. I don't even have to continue. You know. But six stone water jars? What, what, what's up with that? But the Lord used those six stone water jars, had them filled up to the brim, and turned them into wine. And so I'm looking at all these things that we think, oh, God can't use that. God can't use that, and certainly can't use that. God could never use me. How could God use me? And yet, he says, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And the disciples said, we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish. Bring them here to me. That's the key verse. 
In this miraculous event, that's the key verse. Will we just bring whatever we have to Jesus and say, Lord, you know what? I don't have a lot, but here it is. It's yours. And I've seen that personally, that when you just give what you have to the Lord, how he multiplies it, how he uses it. Now, that's a, that's a biblical principle. Now, I'm not going to stand here today and go into that whole seed faith thing and say, you know, so I'm going to pass a plate now, and if you put $100 in it, you know, God's going to give you 1000 and all that kind of stuff. That's not what the scriptures teach at all. You know, I know there's, there's always the one who wants to twist God's word, just give it a little bit of a twist, you know, so that, but that's not God's word, not even a little bit. So if you ever find yourself in a situation where somebody's getting you to trying to get you to play the collection plate like a slot machine, you know, you're well, you know, hey, how come the three red cherries never come up for me? You know, that's not true. Jesus is just saying, bring it, bring it here. What is it? What do you have? What's your resource? Notice he didn't just start with nothing. He says, what do you have to offer? What will you offer? Well, five loaves, two fish. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves. Now, can you imagine at this point what his disciples are thinking? Well, wait a minute. This isn't even going to feed the first row. You know, what's he's thanking the Lord and, and we're going to distribute. Okay, then. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. Now, that's cool. Because when we take what we have and put it in the Lord's hands, he gives it back to us and says, no, here, I want you to give it away. All right? And as they begin to give it away, notice what happens. It says they all ate and were satisfied. Do you know what that means? They all ate and their bellies were full. They were satisfied. They all had as much as they they wanted. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. Now, 12 baskets full of pieces. You know, stop and think about that. The five loaves and two fish wouldn't even fill 12 baskets full. But this is what was left over after everybody was, after thousands of people were fed. And Okay, now, here's what the guy who doesn't believe in miracles would want you to believe. That this little boy came up with his sack lunch because he was, he was there and he said, Jesus, you know, I don't have much, but here's, here's what I have. And so there's these whole elaborate stories now of, well, back then, you know how they wore the big long robes and they had the, you know, the puffy sleeves and they, would, they had drawstrings at the sleeves and they tied. Well, everybody had bread and, you know, fish and stuff up their sleeves and lunch meat and all this stuff, you know, and cheese and sausage and all this stuff. And so then... So, but everybody was so selfish and so stingy that you know they, they weren't going to let anybody know that they had. How do you not let somebody know you got a dead fish up your sleeve? <laughs> That's what I want to know. So, but anyway, they didn't say anything. They wouldn't let anybody know. But then when this little boy came forward and said, um, you know, Jesus, here's my sack lunch. You can have my sack. And then everybody went, oh, you know. And they all had compassion and they shared and everybody had enough to eat. I don't think so. I think the Bible says this was a miraculous thing. It's, the, it's, the, it's one miracle that's mentioned by all four gospel writers. This was a miraculous thing. Jesus took five loaves, two fish, fed thousands of people with it, 
and blessed the Lord. And it says in verse 21, the number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides the women and children. Now immediately, that sounds pretty serious. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side. Now I've read this story a million times and I never saw that. Jesus made them get in the boat. He made them get in the boat. I don't know how he did that, but he said, get in the boat. Okay? He made them immediately. Well, he dismissed the crowd. So he fed them, and then he dismissed them, but he says to his disciples, get in the boat and go on ahead to the other side. Now, after he dismissed them, he went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. So a storm came up. He sends these guys out into the storm. They're a considerable distance away from the shore. He's up on this mountain by himself, spent some time in prayer, and it says, during the fourth watch of the night, that's actually a Roman term, because the Jews had what they, what they would call three watches in the night. The Romans had four watches in the night. It was divided up <clears throat> like this. Um, let's see, uh, from 6 to 9 p.m., from 9 to midnight, from midnight to 3 a.m., and from 3 to 6 a.m., okay? So the fourth watch of the night, this was from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., so it's almost sunrise. Somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. That's miraculous. Only God can do that. That's pretty neat. Would you expect that if God came in the flesh that he would have control over the elements, that he would have control over the water molecules and be able to walk on He did. He walked on the water. He walked on the water, and when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. Now, if he wasn't walking on the lake, if this was just like, well, the boat was right along shore and he was just stepping from one rock to the next, why would these experienced fishermen be afraid? These guys were used to being on the water. This wasn't something new. They were out on the water a considerable distance from shore. Jesus is walking on the water. I don't have a problem with that. And those that have a problem with the miraculous things in the scriptures, and by the way, there are those that um, are Bible commentators that have a problem with the miraculous things and try to always somehow you know, figure them away or, or you know, just dispense with the miracles in the Bible. No, the miracles... In the Bible, it says they, they, they saw him walking on the lake and they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said. And they cried out in fear. Now, these aren't just some kids in a, in a boat for the first time. These are experienced fishermen and they're freaking out. It's, it's a ghost, they cried. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Now this guy gets a he gets a, a bad rap every time you turn around. Peter's getting the business, but he was the only one that had the courage to say, "Lord, let me try that." <laughs> you know, call me. And he said, "Come." And then Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. What did you see that? Have you ever seen that? Peter walked on water. He walked on water, not because he was somebody, just because Jesus allowed him to. 
I think that's really cool. He started walking on the water. He came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. What did he do? He took his eyes off Jesus. It says when he saw the wind, he saw the wind. It was boisterous. It was, it was cranking. He looked at the wind and the waves and he started to sink. Isn't that like us? Isn't that like you and I? Boy, when we get our eyes off Jesus and we start looking at our circumstance, it's real easy to get overwhelmed, isn't it? It's real easy to go down. Now, I'm using that as an analogy, but this was, Peter was walking on water. But as soon as he took his eyes off Jesus, he started to sink. And I look at that and some of the things that goes on here at the fellowship. We watch God doing some incredible things. We got our eyes on Jesus. We're following after him. And then all of a sudden, we start thinking it's us. And then there's this mighty crash. <laughs> you go, what happened? What was that? You know, well, Lord, save me. That's a cool prayer. Remember that. Right to the point. You know, no time for, no time for uh, those big, long sermon prayers at that point. You know, it's like, Lord, save me. I think that prayer should get to the point. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and he caught him. You of little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? Now, that's a good question. Why did Peter doubt? But Peter's the only one that would give it a try. Lord, call me out there. Call me. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. And then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. See, they're starting to get the picture. Just starting <coughs> to get the picture. Excuse me. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. Now, can you get a picture of this? They're starting to recognize who Jesus is. And what he's able to do, and they let everybody know in the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. Now, do you think that Jesus had some kind of magic cloak? No, I don't either. I don't either. I think that he was, once again, honoring the faith that those people had in him. If I can just get to Jesus, if I can just touch the hem of his garment. Hmm. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and they asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Now can you imagine with all the things that are going on, these guys are concerned about ceremonial hand washings? At this time, the Mishnah wasn't written yet. The Mishnah was, was, wasn't written until about A.D. 200. But before that, it was in an oral form. An oral form. <clears throat> the tradition of the elders, um, after the Babylonian captivity, which is what we're studying in, uh, on Sunday mornings in our Ezekiel study, after that uh, Babylonian captivity, the Jewish rabbis began to make meticulous rules and regulations governing the daily life of the people. Um, 
These were interpretations and applications of the law of Moses handed down from generation to generation. Okay, That was the tradition of the elders. And so the, you can see where you know, they were so meticulous about these traditions, much like they are today. Now Jesus comes along and he breaks tradition with a sledgehammer. Okay, But you know how hard it is to break tradition? Do you know how hard it is to break tradition? It's hard for some people, even people who have been attending this fellowship for seven years, you know. What? You're not going to have a service on December 25th? Why not? Um, well, because it's a Wednesday. Yeah, but it's December 25th. Okay, now, I'm trying to catch up with that thought. December 25th. Oh, right. That's right. It's Christmas. You understand? We are so traditionally minded that we think more of the tradition than we do of the Christ. Now, here's Jesus having compassion, loving the people, feeding the people, caring for the people, and the guys who are into tra tra tradition come along and say, what is up with this? Look at your disciples, they break the tradition of the elders. They don't wash their hands before they eat. Now, you and I can see how ridiculous that is. But can we see how stuck on tradition we are when we should know better? And it's, it's, re it's really hard. You know, I encourage people on around Christmas time to spend time with their families, to take people. Oh, here's the other thing. When we're going through the Bible, if somebody shows up here on the Sunday before Christmas or the Sunday after Christmas, they happen to wind up in, this year, they happen to wind up in two studies in the book of Ezekiel. And can you imagine somebody who only goes to church on Christmas and Easter coming thinking, I'm going to hear about Jesus in the manger and I hear about sin and repentance and judgment? What's up with that? I came to hear the Christmas story. You see what I mean? That's not all bad. But the traditions can just wipe us out sometimes. I want you to look carefully at Jesus' reply. It says, Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? Ooh. Excuse me? No, this gets, there's some humor here. There's some sarcasm here coming right up. But I want you to stay with me because Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. All right? And he says, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and your mother. And anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, Whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is a gift devoted to God. He is not to honor his father with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition, you hypocrites. Now, you know what he's talking about here? He's, he's talking about the Corban oath. It goes into it a little deeper in Mark chapter 7. We're not going to turn there tonight. Let me just say this. What they were teaching the people was that if you say, well, you know what, I know that I, that that I should honor my father and my mother and I should take care of my father and my mother and you know now they're elderly and stuff but they made a provision that you could take 
your money that you were supposed to take care of your mother and father with, you can say, well, you know what? It's Corbin. It's a Corbin oath. I gave that to the, to the Lord. That's the Lord's money now. So I don't have to honor you. I don't have to care for you. I don't have because that's that was something they set up. That was their tradition. So there were loopholes to God's law because we have our traditions. So if they say it's Corbin, they can they can actually curse their mother or their father and say, well, you know, it's for your own good. What? Jesus says, thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. Now look at this. He's pointing his finger at the Pharisees and at the teachers of the law, and he says, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. You know what that means? Worthlessness. They worship me with unsuccessful seeking. What? He's saying, you guys don't even have a relationship with the Father. Worship with your lips. Your hearts are far from him. And he's claiming that those words from Isaiah, that prophecy from Isaiah, and, uh, <clears throat> and he's saying, and it says, their teachings are but rules taught by men. He finishes out that prophecy. That's taken from Isaiah 29, 13. And he's saying, Isaiah was tell, talking about you guys. Talking about you Pharisees. You teachers of the law. And Jesus called the crowd to him and he said, listen and understand. Now he turns away from those that are asking him this question about the, why don't they wash? And, and by the way, I don't want you to get the impression that these guys were just a bunch of slobs and they never washed, you know, because that's not the point at all. They were talking about the ceremonial washings. You hold your hands a certain way and you pour water from the fingertips to the wrists and you let it, you know, you don't let it drip onto your, on your forearms because, you know, you have to, then you turn them the other way and you rinse them down. And I mean, there were all these things, that, ceremonial washings that they went through and then they could eat. Because otherwise, the food that they ate would be contaminated by the things that they touched. And, and then it, look at what Jesus says. Now, he turns away from the, from the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and he turns to the crowd, and he says, Listen and understand. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean. But what comes out of his mouth, that's what makes him unclean. And then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? <laughs> that's pretty good that's pretty good again I, I you know there's something that I really get a charge out of and that's when I see the disciples you know trying to counsel Jesus and and you know it's like they're his PR guys you know like Lord Lord if you really want to make Messiah you know you've got to you've got to be a little more sensitive no listen to that again then the disciples came to him and asked do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this you can bet they were because he was claiming Isaiah was prophesying about them and calling them hypocrites. And Jesus replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. What's he saying? Well, he's going back to that parable that we read in Matthew 13 and beginning with verse 24. He's going back to that parable of the weeds. Let me just read it to you quickly. From Matthew 13, verse 24. <coughs> Jesus told them another parable. 
The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. And the owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, don't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? The enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds, tie them up in bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. That's what he's talking about. He's looking at the scribes and the Pharisees. He said, oh yes, they're, they're a part of this big you know, religious tradition. They're a part. But he says, I want you to know this, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted. In other words, those that are planted by the enemy will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. And if a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into the pit. That's, that's what Jesus was saying about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law at that point. He knew that these guys were coming to criticize him. They came from Jerusalem not to hear his teaching. They came to find fault. They came to criticize him. And Jesus knew their hearts. And he said, just leave them. Don't worry about it. You don't have to worry about that. My father will pull them up by the roots. And then Peter said, explain the parable to us. Are you still so dull, Jesus asked? Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes through the stomach and out of the body? But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these make a man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what make a man unclean. But eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now this is kind of neat. Um, you picture Israel, and maybe if you picture it in your in your mind, um, you think it's a it's a big place. And I mean, he's going all over the, the the region here. But understand that where they went, they went one of two ways. They either walked or they rode. You know, I mean, rode a boat, not not rode as in R O D E, but they they R O W to in the boat. So. <clears throat> But they traveled, they left this place, and they went to Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David. Now that's kind of interesting because she's using a Jewish title for the Messiah when she says son of David. But this is a Syrophoenician woman. This is a Canaanite woman. She's a Gentile. And she's using this title that's a, a Hebrew title for the, the Messiah. Israel's Messiah. Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Jesus did not answer a word. Hmm. Wow. It seems like he just shut her out. She's saying, Lord, son of David, help me. Help my daughter. She's demon possessed. Jesus doesn't say a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him. Here they are again. Counseling time. They urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. 
you know, here's this pesty Gentile woman, just, Lord, just tell her to get out of here. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, at first glance, you're going, wait a minute, the Lord is, first of all, he shuts her out by not saying a word. Now he, now he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. And the woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. Picture what's going on here. She's being persistent. She has faith that Jesus can do something about this condition of her daughter. And she's crying out for help. And he replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Wow. I want you to think about something for a second here. Jesus knows this woman from the foundations of the world. He knows her heart. He knows why she's there. And he knows how he's going to respond to her. And he knows about her faith. What's he doing? Why is he doing this? Why did he not talk to her? Why did he keep silent? Then why did he say, well, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel, and now he says it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Because Jesus knew how she was going to persist and how she was going to respond. And look at what she says in verse 27. Now this is faith, you guys. Yes, Lord, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. You want to talk about touching Jesus' heart with faith? Look at what he says. Then Jesus answered, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Now think about that. Here's a Gentile woman. First of all, Jews didn't have anything to do with Gentiles. They wouldn't even look at them, let alone speak to them. Plus it was a woman who was, they didn't speak to women in public, so now you got two strikes against you. She just keeps persisting and she says, yeah, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. She knew he was the master. She put her faith in Jesus and Jesus was impacted by that faith and granted her, healed her daughter. But Jesus left there and he went along the Sea of Galilee and then he went up on a mountainside and he sat down and great crowds came to him bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they laid him at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry, or they may collapse on the way. Now, notice the compassion of Jesus. This is his very nature, by the way, to have compassion on those who are blind and naked and pitiful and wretched and you know sick and the mute, the lame, the blind. So he's having compassion. It's the very nature of Jesus. But his disciples answer, where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? Again, what does Jesus say? How many loaves do you have? <laughs> Picture this. What are you willing to invest here, my disciples? You know, we call ourselves disciples of Jesus, and yet Jesus is looking at us and saying, oh, you want a revival in Plainfield, and Bancroft, and Coloma, and Hancock, and 
But, you know, how many loaves do you have? What are you willing to invest? What are your resources? What are you going to do? What are you going to put into this? I think I find that interesting. Because, of course, that's our prayer. We want everybody's needs met. But the Lord Jesus looks to the disciples and says, well, so what are you willing to invest here? Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. We got seven loaves and a few small So, <clears throat> verse 35, he told the crowd to sit down on the ground, and then he took the seven loaves and the fish, and when he had given thanks, he broke them, and he gave them to the disciples, and they in turn to the people. Again, it was the same procedure. He had them sit down. He gave thanks. He broke the bread. And I love this because Jesus, this is a, something that you see Jesus establishing here is this fellowship of the breaking of bread. And by the way, that's the way they recognized. Remember the two guys on the road to Emmaus? They didn't know it was Jesus, and they were all bummed out because of the crucifixion. And, and, but here Jesus is walking alongside them, and he pretends like he's going to go into the next village, and they, and they say, no, 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 spend the night with us. Just come and stay with us. So he's, he, he goes in with them. He, he has an Old Testament Bible study. He opens the Word. He goes all the way back to Moses in the Scriptures and reveals himself but it wasn't until he broke bread that they recognized him. And when they recognized him, then he left. And they said, you know, weren't our hearts just burning within us when he was opening up the scriptures to us and stuff? And I look at this, and now Jesus is he's establishing this, break, giving thanks, breaking bread, giving it to the people. And it says in verse 37, they all ate and were satisfied. There it is again. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketful of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was 4,000 besides women and children. And after Jesus had sent the crowds away, he got into the boat and he went to the vicinity of Megadon. Now, starting chapter 16, you see these guys, this time it's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to Jesus and they tested him. They tested him. Can you imagine that? I think I'm going to test God. Let's test him here. See if I can trick him. They tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, this is a, a sure sign that I'm not God, because here's what I would have done at this point. I would have got some placards, and I would have made him some signs. You want to see, you want to see some signs? Here, I'd draw on one, and one would say, rebellious. Here, you hold this one. Here's your sign. That's for you. Want another sign? Here, here's one for you. Prideful. Here, you can hang on to that one. And just here, parade around with these. You want to see a sign? Here's another one. Here, you hold this one right under. Hypocrite. You know, carry that around. And like Jeff Foxworthy, you know, here's your sign. That's they want a sign from Jesus? Wait a minute now. He just he fed five thousand with five loaves and two fish. He feeds four thousand with seven loaves and a few fish, a few small fish. And they say, well, what sign will you show us? I'm going, I'm surprised, he, I'm surprised the Lord did say, we want to see a sign? All right, here. You know, and they were all just these little grease spots on the ground. You know, I, I, I'm surprised that he didn't just smoke them right there. But his, here's the love of Jesus. Give him another opportunity. Jesus replied, when evening comes, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. And I'm sure you've heard that, that saying. It's a, 
It's a yeah, red red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky in the morning, sailors take warning. It's a it's an old adage, and I didn't realize it went all the way back to these days, but apparently it does. And and they said you know those things. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. What's Jesus saying? Signs of the times. Yeah, this is the time that the Messiah has come to visit you, and you're blowing it. You're missing it. You can tell the weather, but you can't tell the signs of the times. And we're seeing that same thing today. You know, I, I talk to people who who claim to be, you know, great, you know, men of God, following God, but they have no interest in prophecy. They have no interest in you know, Old Testament scriptures leading up to where we are, the times we live in, the signs of the times. Nothing. There's just no, whoa, why, you know, how come you guys are into that stuff? That's crazy, you know. Well, Jesus told us to watch and pray. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. He said we would know the signs of the times. He said you're not going to know the day or the hour, but, you know, my people are, they're enlightened. They're going to know the signs of the times. They're going to know. He says, a wicked and an adulterous generation looks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and he went away. Now, you understand, because Jesus has gone into this before, the sign of Jonah was Jonah, the prophet, was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. And Jesus told them, hey, the Son of Man is going to be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So then he left them and he went away. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Uh-oh. <laughs> By this time, you'd be going, what do we need bread for? You know, hey, let's just take a half a loaf or whatever. <clears throat> but they went and they, they, they forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and said, it is because we didn't bring any bread. Now, wait a minute. Um, aware of their discussion, <laughs> verse 8, aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, you of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gather? How is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then they understood that he was not telling them to guard themselves against yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So these are those weeds, these are those thistles, these are the, 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 the transplants of the enemy, if you will. And by the way, the church is full of them today. There's a lot of false teachers, there's lots of lying going on in the name of Jesus. So you can't just go, oh, wow, well, the, you know, the guy uses Jesus' name all the time and he's, he's got a Bible. He never opens it, but he's got one. You know, he can swing it. You understand what I'm saying? There's a lot of false teaching. And Jesus said, beware. Beware of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, now, those of you that are going to Israel with us, I want you to take special note of this because that region, Caesarea Philippi, today it's called Binius. Binius. And, and Binius Falls, it's at the, the, the base of Mount Hermon. 
and it's the beginning of the of the, of the Jordan River. I mean, it's the it's the Binius Falls there, and the and the beginning of the Jordan. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. Well, that's where they were, and we're going to spend some time there. It's a gorgeous place. One of my favorite places, by the way. Caesarea Philippi. And it says, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist. Uh, Well, we just saw that, didn't we? Herod thought he was John the Baptist reincarnate. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Now, that's a good question. And by the way, it determines whether or not you're saved or lost. Who do you say that Jesus, who do you say the Son of Man is? There's lots of different interpretations of who Jesus is. But I want you to look at who do you say that I am? Put your name in there. Who do you say Jesus is? It's critical. Simon Peter answered. Now, Simon Peter steps up to the plate and he says, you are the Christ. I want you to understand that word Christ or Messiah, you are the Christ, is mentioned 514 times in the New Testament. That's pretty important that you know the Christ. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now look at Jesus' response. Because he got, him, he got out of the disciples. Well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But what about you? And Peter says, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Or your Bible may say Simon Bar-Jonah. Son, Bar means son of. Simon Bar-Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by man. Your Bible may say flesh and blood but by my Father in heaven. Jesus is saying that was a divine revelation, Peter, and the only way that you could get it was from God the Father. The only way you can understand that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, as if the Father reveals it to you. Now, he says, and I tell you, now stay with me, this is, this is crucial here, um, because not only is this crucial to your, your understanding and your salvation, it's also crucial because people are going to ask you this question Um, about this particular verse. I get this a lot. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now that's a a real touchy verse in some circles because there's two different ways you can interpret this. You can interpret this that, what's this rock? Who's this rock? Well, one of two things. Either it's Peter, either Peter is the rock, or the revelation that God gave to Peter is the rock. It's the foundation. Okay. Now, Paul writes to the Corinthian church in chapter 3, I think it's like verse 11, where he says there's no other foundation that you can build but on Christ Jesus. So he clears it up that it's not Peter who's the foundation of the church. It's this revelation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's the rock. That's the foundation of the church. Paul clears that up later. But what about this? What's he saying? And why would he say, and I tell you that you are Peter? Why would he say that? Doesn't Peter know that he's Peter? Yeah, Peter knows that he's Peter. But what's he saying here? There's two different words used. One is Petros. Petros. Now, that's not, I'm not talking about the guy who made my guitar. That's a different Petros. That's Bruce Petros. We're not talking about him. One is that he says, you are Petros. And that word Petros, by the way, it's a Greek word. And it means 
little stone. It means a little stone. Then he says, he says, you are Petros, and on this Petra. How many have been to Petra? It's a big rock, isn't it? <laughs> it's a huge rock. I mean, here, Peter, you're the little pebble. You know, go ahead and call him Rocky if you want. But he's the little stone, and he says, on this Petra, on this foundation. And by the way, isn't Jesus called the corner stone? Isn't he called the foundation stone? He's the stone that the builders rejected, all those things. So I want you to understand that, that Peter is not the first pope. He's not, the church wasn't built on Peter. If we just go on in a couple more verses, you'll see why Peter is not the first pope. Okay? Um, he says, and I tell you that you are Petros, and on this Petra I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now that's important too. I want you to think about this for a second. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, I believe that God has given us authority. He's given us authority as his disciples, as his followers, as we're filled with the Holy Spirit. We have power over principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. He's given us all of his armor. He's given us all the benefits. But I don't necessarily think that that's what he's talking about here. And I'll tell you why in just a second. Um, he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, what are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? Well, quickly, because we're running out of time, turn to Acts chapter 5. <clears throat> I want to show you something. In Acts chapter 5... I'm going to show you a couple of keys to the kingdom. And look at verse 31. Acts chapter 5 and verse 31. Uh, back up to verse 29. I'm going to take it from there. Uh, chapter 5 and Acts, verse 29. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. Now verse 31 says, God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. I want you to know that two keys to the kingdom of heaven are repentance and forgiveness of sin. If there is no repentance and there is no forgiveness of sin, there is no entering the kingdom. Okay? Keys. Keys. Peter holds the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Repentance and forgiveness. Now, I'm going to stitch this shut by taking you uh, to chapter 18 of Matthew because I want to show you again where Jesus uses this same phrase where he's talking about binding and loosing, okay? Because that, there's a lot of confusion about that. You know, people start talking about binding demons and go around, you know, bind. I bind you and I, you know... And well, if that was about demons, then what's the loosing thing? You don't you loose a loose a demon. Well, then where does he go? Well, and whatever's bound on earth will, you know, be bound in heaven. And you mean there's demons bound in heaven? No, there's not. I don't think he's talking about demons. I don't think it's about demonology here at all, because demons aren't bound in heaven. And are they loosed in heaven? Well, there aren't demons loosed in heaven either. So. Take a look at Matthew chapter 18, and I want to show you something about binding and loosing. Chapter 18 and verse 15. 
And I've taken many of you here personally, we've talked about this, as you've had maybe a brother that sinned against you or offended you or whatever. Look at what it says in verse 15, chapter 18. If your brother sins against you, all right? You're going to learn about binding and loosing here. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother over. Isn't that cool? But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And then if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. No, the, this is a, a series and a sequence of events that we're to go through when someone sins against us or offends us. And as you do that, you will watch God set people free. If there's not restoration, if there's not forgiveness, well, then what happens? Well, then they're the ones that are bound. They're the ones that are, are, are no longer free because they're bound up by their sin and they're bound up by... But look at the next verse, verse 18. I tell you the truth. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He's not talking about demons here. He's talking about relationships, vertical relationships with our fellow man. And God is interested in those things. He wants us to be free to have relationships with each other. But here's the process. Here's how you win a brother over who sins against you. And again, I tell you, he says in verse 19, again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. So now when you go back to Matthew 16 and you read about binding and loosing, it makes sense. What's it saying? It's saying that heaven will cooperate with you when you use the keys. Peter, here's the keys. Repentance and forgiveness. What were they preaching? They were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what happened? As they preached the gospel, people said, well, what do we got to do? What must we do to be saved? And he said, repent, every one of you, and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. So there's the keys to the kingdom. Now, I'm going to finish up here. Chapter 16 says, and then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Now, what's up with that? Well, wasn't time yet. It's not time yet. There's going to come a time after the resurrection. They're going to be assigned to tell him that he was the Messiah. It's not time. Jesus was concerned that they were going to take him by force and try to make him king. Then he predicts his death. Now, he tells them, don't, listen, now you've, you, you've acknowledged that I'm the Christ, the Son of God. That's good. It's a revelation from heaven. He tells them all that. He says, no, don't tell anybody. But then look what he says. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. And Peter took him aside, and he rebuked him. What? Never, Lord, never, he said. This shall never happen to you. Well, excuse me? Jesus turned to Peter, and he said, Get thee behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Now, this is just a few verses after he said, you're the little rock, and here's the big stone that we're going to build on here, that I am the Christ. I am the. But he's saying, you don't have to go to the cross. Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross. 
Far be it from thee, Lord, that anything like this would happen to you. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Doesn't sound like the first pope to me. You know, there's some serious thinking to be done here about that whole mentality of Peter being the guy that the church was built on. The church is built on Jesus Christ. There is no other foundation. So that question will come up, and you have the answer to that. Take them right into Scripture. Don't take my word for it. Don't trust me. Take them right into Scripture. Jesus is the only foundation. There's only one name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. Deny yourself. Here's our choice. We can deny ourselves or we can deny Jesus. Can't have it both ways. If you don't deny yourself, you're denying Christ. He says, you want to be my disciple? Deny yourself. You must take up his cross and follow me. Both the denial of self is a symbol of death and the cross is a symbol of death to self. If you saw somebody carrying a cross back in these days, it meant that they were on death row. They were about to have their life taken from them. For, whatever, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. And I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Okay? And we're going to get into what that means next week because we're out of time. But praise the Lord. We covered a lot of ground tonight. Let's thank him. Father, we do thank you for this Bible study tonight, Lord, and we thank you for trusting us with the keys to the kingdom. And I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't drop the keys or lose the keys or be fumbling with our keys, but that we would use the keys that you've given us, Lord, your awesome gospel. Thank you for Jesus, the price he paid. Thank you for shredding that veil from top to bottom that we can come right into your presence in the Holy of Holies and into your throne room of grace. And God, help us to share the good news with our friends and our relatives and our co-workers and our classmates. And God, I thank you tonight that you've shown us that anyone that will come to you in repentance, anyone who will come to you and, and say, Lord, I want to turn from my sin and I want to follow you, will experience your forgiveness. And those are the keys. God, we just bless your name tonight for calling us. Lord, use us as you stretch your hand across this community. Use us, Lord, to deliver the message. In Jesus' name, amen.